0: Well, church, have you ever heard the phrase house divided? Growing up around here, you've likely heard that phrase or seen that slogan on a flag hanging outside of someone's home. Flag is split down the middle. One side being light blue with the Tar Heel logo, the other side being bright red with a a wolf pack logo. Sometimes it's dark blue and light blue with Duke and Carolina logos, respectively. These flags indicate that within the home, there is a split allegiance among the cheering loyalties of family members. My family is a house divided home. We would need a flag split in three directions. Duke State, and Carolina. These flags are a fun way to acknowledge and to celebrate one's fandom. But the message of house divided, as funny as it may be, on a flag describing your collegiate affiliation, is actually not a designation that you want describing your home. For the phrase house divided has a long and significant history both in our nation and in our world, that warns of an ominous outcome due to the stated division. In our nation, long before the phrase house divided hung as a sign of pride outside of our homes, it was spoken in a speech given by soon-to-be President Abraham Lincoln at the Republican Convention of 1858. In his speech, he was addressing the existential threat that faced our nation as it sought to remain together despite its divided views on slavery. Lincoln warned the convention that he did not believe that the government could endure in a half-slave, half-free state. Quoting, a house divided against itself cannot stand. He believed that the division if it remained, would ultimately tear the nation apart. Lincoln borrowed this turn of phrase, the house divided, from another great orator and emancipator. The phrase was originally spoken nearly 2,000 years earlier, when Jesus of Nazareth coined the phrase while arguing against the Pharisees who accused him of performing his miracles by the power of Satan. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus showed them the absurdity of their claim by explaining to them that every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and no city or house divided against itself will stand. Jesus was making the point that he obviously was not working in the power of Satan because if Satan were casting out Satan, then his house could not stand. Instead, Jesus was arguing that his wasn't a house divided fighting against itself. Instead, it was two different kingdoms warring against one another. And the kingdom of God was winning. The point I want to make in all of this is that this idea of a house divided might be funny on a flag, but it is nothing to laugh about within the fellowship of faith. Division brings no real consequences when it concerns your sports fandom, but there are huge consequences when division divides your spiritual family. And that's really the root of what we're going to be talking about today as we continue in our summer sermon series looking at the metaphors of the church. Today we come uh, literally and figuratively to the most foundational of all of the metaphors for the church as we consider the idea of the church as a a house, or as a building, or as a temple. Now, the metaphor of the church as a building is a bit ironic for us today, because for much of recent church history, we've been trying to convince people that the church is not a building, right? Uh, But instead, the church is its people. We've argued that the church isn't about the intricate woodwork, or the stained glass window, or the pipe organs that everyone's grandmother loves so much. And that people so get worked up about. But instead, it's about the saints and the sinners who are depending upon the good news of the grace of God in Christ Jesus. That is the church. The people are the church. You and I, you and me, we are the church. And while that is true, and while we will get to that eventually... Still, both Paul and Peter point us to the metaphor of the church as a building or as a household or as a temple, because these images have something important to teach us about the nature of the church, particularly relating to its unity. So if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open it with me to Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, as we consider together the church as a building and how that speaks to our unity with one another. Both here in Ephesians chapter 2 and in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, which is the other uh, main uh, passage where the church is likened to a building, this metaphor is used to speak of the unity that exists within the life of the church. In Ephesians, uh, Paul is addressing the, the bigger picture unity between Gentiles and Jews, but two groups which represent the ethnicities of the entire world. He's describing here how a unity is possible between any two types of people. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he's addressing that unity uh, that exists within one particular church community in Corinth. So one passage is addressing a global scale and another is addressing a local matter. But in both cases, Paul is making the exact same argument as to the source of our unity with one another. We see it in Ephesians chapter two, uh, verses 19 and 20, where Paul summarizes this entire section that we had read earlier by writing this. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you're no longer divided From one another, he's saying, but instead you are fellow citizens, you have unity with the saints and the members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. First Corinthians chapter three, verse 10, Paul says the same thing. He says it like this, that he, like a skilled master builder, laid a foundation and that no one can lay another foundation except for the one which has been laid, which is Christ Jesus. So, in both cases, it is the foundation of the apostles, with Jesus as their focus, as the cornerstone, which is the basis for our unity with one another within the church. What does that mean, and why does it matter? That's what we're going to consider this morning. What does the foundation of the apostles and Jesus as a cornerstone mean, and why does it matter for unity within the church? Well, first, what does the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Jesus as their cornerstone mean? What is Paul talking about here? Well, the foundation of of the apostles and the prophets refers to the original teaching that the apostles gave to the church. In the scriptures, the apostles are a very specific group of originally 12 and later 13 men. And in Mark chapter 3, we learn that early in his ministry, Jesus went up onto a mountainside to pray. And then he called to him those that he desired. These are his disciples. And then he appointed 12 of them to be apostles. So among all of Jesus' disciples, there were 12 that were specifically appointed as apostles. And the reason that Jesus did this, Mark 3 tells us, is so that these apostles might be with Jesus and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority. So these men lived with Jesus and they followed Jesus and they watched Jesus and they learned from Jesus. And they were eventually sent out by Jesus to preach and to teach his message with authority. Later, we learn in Acts chapter one that when one of the apostles needed to be replaced because of Judas's death, That the requirement for finding a new apostle was that it had to be someone who had accompanied the Lord from his baptism all the way until his resurrection from the dead. So so they had to be eyewitnesses of the events of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. They had to have seen him heal. They had to have heard him teach. They had to have been eyewitnesses to his resurrection. These were the requirements for being an apostle. The only exception to those requirements within the group of the apostles was the apostle Paul, who in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 describes himself as an apostle that was untimely born because he wasn't with all of the other apostles throughout Jesus's life. But in order to make up for that, the resurrected Lord appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus, and he gave Paul a vision, and he called Paul to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And so all of that is a very long way of saying that the apostles are a very specific and defined group of men who were called by God to be eyewitnesses of Jesus's life and his death and his resurrection and who were sent to preach the message of Jesus's life with authority to the world. And that's basically what we have in our New Testament scriptures. Okay? And over and over again throughout the New Testament, the apostles acknowledge two very important aspects about their teaching. First, is that their teaching was from God and not from man. The apostles make very clear that they didn't invent or make up this message that they were proclaiming, but instead that it was given to them by God. Paul says in Galatians chapter 1, For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through a revelation of Jesus Christ. The Apostle John in 1 John says this, that that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, which we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you, too, may have fellowship, unity with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. The Apostle Peter likewise opens and closes his first letter to the church, acknowledging his apostleship, that he was one who was sent by the authority of God. And that his words are the true grace of God. And that we are to stand firm in them. So so all of the apostles affirm that their message was not their own. It was given to them by God. They were sent by God to tell the specific message that they had been given. As a result, the second important aspect of their teaching is that it cannot be changed in any way. The teachings of the apostles cannot be altered, cannot be added to, cannot be taken away from. And they have profoundly strong statements, warnings about this reality in their writings. Paul says in the, in, to the Galatians that if anyone, even an angel from heaven, Should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preached to you, let him be accursed. At the end of Revelation, John writes that I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this scroll, that if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in the scroll. And if anyone takes words away from this scroll of prophecy... God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which was described in the scroll. These are firm and ominous warnings that we will be cursed if we change this message in any way. And the reason that the apostles are so insistent that their teaching not be changed in any way is because it's ultimately not their teaching But it is the teaching of Christ. These are not ultimately their words, but they are the words of God. So they cannot be changed. It says Jude writes in his letter that the faith that we have been handed down was entrusted to us once and for all for the saints. The Lord's purpose was that through his apostles, his message of salvation to the world uh, salvation of life through Jesus, our Savior, would be given to the world. And, and that is what we have in the scriptures. It's why as Anglicans, we affirm that in the scriptures, we have all things necessary for our salvation. It's all here in the teaching of the apostles. So it cannot be changed. And, and when you put all of that together. What Paul is saying is that this very specific teaching from these very specific apostles is the foundation of the church with Jesus as its cornerstone. This is what the church is built upon. This is what holds the church up and supports her in her life. This is what keeps the church steady when the ground underneath her shifts. This is what keeps the church upright when the winds of change beat against her walls. Everything that a foundation does for a building, holding it up, keeping it level, ensuring its structural stability, keeping it in one place so that it stands firm and solid in its integrity, keeping the good things that are supposed to be inside in and the bad things that are supposed to be Outside out, and everything that a foundation does for a building, the teachings of the apostles do for the church. It's what we're built upon, it's what causes us to stand firm. Their teachings are what give us our sure footing. The foundation of the apostles is as essential for the life of the church as a solid foundation is. For any building upon which it is built. It's essential. And it cannot stand without it. And because the apostles foundational teaching is centered and focused and pointed on the person of Jesus. He is the cornerstone. In ancient times the, the cornerstone was the most important part of any foundation. Because it was the first stone that was laid. And all of the other stones that build up the foundation were all laid in reference to the cornerstone. The cornerstone was crucially important because everything else in the building depended upon it. Its size, its shape, its structure, its alignment. The the cornerstone was the was the measuring line for the entire building. If it wasn't level, then the entire building would end up being uneven. If the cornerstone was misaligned, then the entire building would end up being misaligned too. The entire structure of the building took its shape and its form and its direction based upon the foundational cornerstone that was laid. Everything depended upon it. So the cornerstone becomes the most important part of the most important part of any building – And the same is true for the church. The entire teaching of the apostles is focused on Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, and the implications of it for our lives. And as a result, he, Jesus, gives us our direction. He gives us our alignment. Everything pertaining to the church is built in reference to him. He's the most important part of the most important part. The metaphor of of the church as a building reminds us that we are built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself being our cornerstone. And the reason that that matters to our unity is because if you alter a building's foundation or if you move a building even slightly from the foundation upon which it was built then the integrity of the entire structure of that building is put at risk. A building cannot stand if it is moved off of its foundation. So, for example, many people today look at the foundation of the apostles and the prophets and they take out the pieces that they don't like. They say, I don't like what the the apostles have to say about sin, or I don't like what the apostles have to say about repentance, or I don't like what the apostles have to say about denying oneself, or I don't like what the apostles have to say about a coming judgment, whatever it may be. And and so they, they rip those parts of the foundation out from underneath the building. That's taking away from the foundation of the apostles. And when that happens... A building may be able to to balance and to totter for a little while on what's left of its foundation. But when a strong storm comes, that building is going to fall down. Because what the church had always stood upon and what it had found its footings in has been radically altered. There's no more solid foundation to it. It's been torn out from underneath it. This has happened or is happening in almost every major denomination that exists. The the Anglican Church of North America, of which we are a part, exists today because of the way that the Episcopal Church did this over the past 70 years. The foundation began to slowly be chipped away until the house became so divided that it could no longer stand and it broke apart. You cannot take away from the foundation of the apostles and have a church that remains intact. You can't take away from a foundation. But you also cannot add to the foundation. That's the other side of the problem. Some people hate the foundation of the apostles and they try to tear it down. Others love the foundation of the apostles so much that they try to add additional foundation upon it. They take the teaching of the apostles and they, they add moral requirements on to it. That they add standards of morality for, for who can be a part of the church and who can't. They take the foundation of the apostles and they, they raise it up so high that it becomes a stumbling block. People trip over it trying to come into the doors. It becomes a barrier of entry where people feel like they can't even get into the doors of the church any longer. And we can't do that either. Paul makes clear that he and the apostles, at the direction of the Lord, have laid a foundation for the church and that no one can lay any other foundation except for the one that has been laid, which is Jesus. Not your Jesus. Not my Jesus, but Jesus as He has made known to us in the Scriptures from the teaching of the Apostles. Who were the eyewitnesses of His life and His death and His resurrection. And who were sent by the authority of God to make Him known to the world through the church. This is our foundation. This is our authority This is the basis of our unity with one another. And friends, we need to be careful about this. We need to be wise and discerning, and we need to know our scriptures. We need to know the teaching of the apostles so that we can determine if what we are believing has a solid foundation or not. Because there is a lot of information out there. in in popular and in cultural Christianity that is not based upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. There are all kinds of buildings out there that look like churches and that sound like churches and that function like churches, but that are not built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus as their cornerstones. And hence they are not the church. It might be a religious organization or a spiritual gathering or church-like. But if it's built on a different foundation, it's not the same building. It's not the church. So we need to be careful and wise and discerning on these things. But when we do stand firm upon the same foundation, when Jesus gets His proper place as the cornerstone of the church and of our lives, And when the foundation of the apostles gets built around him, when the whole structure gets joined together in Christ, Paul tells us in verse 21 of Ephesians 2 that the church grows into a holy temple in the Lord. When the foundation is off, the whole building crumbles. But when the foundation is solid, the church becomes the dwelling place of God. And not the church building. That's just a metaphor. But the church incarnate, you and me. When we build our lives upon this foundation, we get built together into a dwelling place for God by His Spirit. We become the living stones that Peter talks about, who are built together as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus. We become God's dwelling place on earth. But it all starts with a cornerstone. It all depends upon the foundation. Will we be built firmly upon it. I pray that we will for God's glory and for our good. Amen.